Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Ugly Things Podcast. I'm Mike Stacks, the editor and publisher of Ugly Things Magazine. In this episode, I talk to my friend Cyril Jordan of the Flaming Groovies. One of the all-time greatest rock and roll bands, the Groovies have existed in one form or another since the mid-60s, with a few extended intermissions along the way. And they're still going strong today, with Cyril at the helm. For the past 10 years, Cyril has also been a regular contributor to Ugly Things with his popular column, The San Francisco Beat. He lives and breathes rock and roll, and he has stories. Every time I talk to Cyril, he has another eye-opening, side-splitting rock and roll story I've never heard before. So, I thought it was time we recorded a podcast episode so you could hear some of these for yourself. After some discussion with Cyril, we decided to make this episode a tribute to Roy Loney, the band's original lead singer, frontman, songwriter, and its driving force through the 60s and early 70s. This coming Thursday, April 13th, would have been Roy's 77th birthday. He died on December 13th, 2019. Without Roy, there would have been no flaming groovies. This one's for you, Roy. So I'm here today with Cyril Jordan of the Flaming Groovies, and we're going to be talking about another original Flaming Groovy, the guy who started the band with Cyril, and that's Roy Loney. So tell me, Cyril, how did you first meet Roy Loney? How did this whole thing get rolling? Well, one night I was uh, hanging out at uh, my uh, hangout, weekly hangout, which was a bowling alley, and it had a pool hall named Castle Lanes, uh, about three blocks up from the Cow Palace. And uh, I was talking to my girlfriend on the phone, and uh, there's this guy uh, playing a harmonica real close by with a beetle haircut. So I told I told Don, I said, listen, I got to hang up. I got I got to talk to somebody. So I went over and we started talking. And uh, through uh, uh, George, uh, I met Timmy and Roy. Uh, he had a, a, a little group with these two guys. And those two guys, Tim and Roy, they were folkies going back to about 59, you know. So you're talking about Tim Lynch here and, and George Alexander. I'm talking about Tim Lynch, yeah. Tim Lynch and George Alexander and Roy Loney, they were uh, uh, kind of a trio. And they kind of had a little band, and I had a band. And George came over, saw my band, and then he said, why don't you come over and see mine? 
and I'll have uh, Roy pick you up. So I looked out my window uh, later uh, in the week, that, uh, and there's Roy Loney driving up, and we drive to Tim's house. And uh, we're set up in Tim's living room, and we start playing. And, uh, of course, I, I'm the one that starts taking it over because I'm, I'm the lead guitar player. So, you know, everybody's going, what are we going to do? And I just start, baby, please don't go. that we get through it then I started Tobacco Road then I started House of the Rising Sun and you know after an hour uh, we had played all these songs all the way through so we actually were a band uh, at the end of this hour of, of jamming and so uh, we decided to form a group and that was it And that first year in 65, I'm pretty much hanging out with Tim. You know, Tim's got a TR uh, uh, Triumph, uh, TR4A uh, convertible, uh, beautiful car. And uh, he would pick me up at, uh, at, after school and then we'd just go out and out and about, you know. Anyway, uh, Tim moves out of his mom's house into this place called the 11th Avenue Circus, which was a place that a bunch of nurses uh, were living in. And then George moves out. So now I'm friends with Roy and I'm hanging out with Roy every night. And, uh, you know, we're going, we're going to movies. We're going to all the art cinemas all week long, maybe three, four or five times a, a, a week. And, uh, we really become good buddies. And, uh, I'm invited over to Roy's, uh, uh, mom's house for dinner every Sunday, uh, for the next couple of years. And those were the days that Roy and I would write songs. You know, the other times we'd just be out and about, going to going to club seat groups, uh, going to bookstores, going to movies. But on those Sundays, we would be hanging out, playing our guitars and listening to Roy's record collection. And slowly but surely, you know, what Roy would was a writer, and he would he would show me one song after another. He didn't have any arrangements; he just played a little. Uh, acoustic guitar and sang some lyrics, you know. So I started doing arrangements for these things that Roy was coming up with. And, uh, you know, we'd get, we'd get together with the other guys and uh, we'd work out the arrangements and, and run through it and, and get it established. So, you know, by the time we cut sneakers, we had a complete set of original music. Um, a lot of that stuff has, has been lost. There was a song called... Um, Local Boy Makes Good. Uh, that was one that I sang, and I think that one's lost forever, although I do remember it, you know. But uh, we, uh, we slowly became partners in, in a songwriting venture, uh, besides being members of a, of a band, you know. And so our friendship flourished uh, from 66, I would say, till about 71, right, after, right, right before he left uh, the band. All right, so you're talking about the songs that you and Roy were writing when you would go over there uh, for dinner on every Sunday. So, you know, tell me about some of the songs that you were writing back then in these early days. Well, we were, we were uh, you know, really interested in, in, in different kinds of music uh, at that time. Roy had a very large uh, a collection of, of folk albums, 
from you know Vanguard and Arhuli and other labels. So I was getting an education on music that was uh, wasn't uh, what I was what I was used to, and uh, I got turned on to jug band music, um, the Jim Kreskin jug band. So Roy and I started writing a bunch of jug band type songs. And you can see, you can hear some of that on sneakers, uh, where we're morphing out of a jug band thing into a more R&B rock thing slowly, you know. Right, yeah. Can't you see them babes in the sky there? Maybe they're just learning to fly there. Need some time to catch my breath here. Can't you taste the smell of death near? But, uh, you know, we kept we kept our influences up. I mean, it wasn't just the Stones and the Beatles and the Kinks uh, and the Who and the Yardbirds or whatever. Uh, it, now it was uh, Blind Lemon Jefferson. Uh, it was Lead Belly. Uh, it was Robert Johnson. It was Man Slipskin. You know, and we were just we were just eating this this stuff daily. Uh, every day there was a new artist that we would listen to and and. You know, maybe out of out of four or five of these these new artists that we were uh, getting into, uh, one of them would have a big influence on us. There was an album uh, that came out on London Records. It was called "The Blues Came Down from Memphis," and it had like labels, Sun Record labels, seventy-eight labels on the cover, two rows of them. You know, and. Uh, this album was just unbelievable. I mean, uh, you know, Love Have Mercy on uh, Super Snaz was ripped off from one of these songs, which was called uh, I Feel So Worried. Well, I want to tell you, we're so happy you invited us into your home. And we'd like to play a few songs for you right now. And then later on in Teenage Head, uh, Dr. Boogie uh, was a ripoff of the Dr. Ross song boogie disease okay all of these records were on this album and we were ripping this this sucker off for years you know getting influences <laughs> you know when you're when you're trying to learn how to write a song you know it's a very difficult thing to figure out how to do that and the best way to do it is to learn other people's songs uh, other people who wrote their own music and learn that and 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 you know get 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 uh familiar with the structure of of a tune which is a there's a verses and then there's a chorus and then you know there's an intro part uh, uh, uh there's a, a middle uh, solo and then there's an outro section so all of these all of these things have to be figured out so the more you learn about you know the the styles of music that pe- other people wrote you know, the more info you have when you're writing your own stuff, you can pull from here, you can pull from there, you know. So that period between 66, 71, that was a that was a heavy learning period. We weren't only performing, but we were really learning a whole lot more than we had before the Beatles had come out, you know. Right. Well, speaking of the Beatles, you got to tell the story about, uh, you know, how you uh, got to see the uh, the Beatles when Roy picked you up at the airport that one time. Can you tell that story for us? Yeah, I'd gone to Europe for the summer to visit my relatives in Holland. And when I flew back, Roy was at the airport to pick me up. And uh, my birthday was in two days. And the Beatles were playing like uh, the day before my birthday. Like, I think it was August 30th or something. 
And Roy says, hey, you want to go see the Beatles? And they go, yeah, what are you talking about? You give me a ticket? He says, no, but I, my girlfriend and I broke up. So you can use her ticket, you know. So we went to see the Beatles. Uh, we're sitting, we're sitting in the last row. I mean, we must have been a mile up, you know what I mean, in the state in Candlestick Stadium. You know, the stage was the size of a cheese cracker you know, from where we were. <laughs> and the Ronettes came on and they played. The Remains opened. The Ronettes came on and then the Beatles came on and uh, played a very short set. Uh, I remember Harrison being out of tune a little bit. Anyway, when we got back uh, to 11th Avenue, where everybody was hanging out from this point on, you know, Roy Roy had just started smoking pot at that point, and uh, I was stoned out of my head. I was I was running around from one room to another, going groovy, groovy. You know, <laughs> Roy comes in, he goes, he's a flaming groovy. <laughs> And that's how we got the name. We became the Flame and Groovies the day after the Beatles' last show. And I was very pleased because I wasn't too jazzed about the other names, the Chosen Few and the Lost and Found. I mean, they, you know, we really didn't do anything for me. Flame and Groovies was a little bit more up up my alley, you know, like Lovin' Spoonful, Flaming Groovies, Rolling Stones. You got to have at least three or four syllables, you know what I mean? <laughs> right, I hear you. you know, in a good name. I think the Beatles were the only ones that only had two, and it sounded great, and that was enough, you know. But <laughs> uh, when we became the Flame of Groovies, the whole the whole format of the band changed. We be, we went from being a garage band doing uh, all the covers uh, to doing nothing but original uh, music, and we were writing. We were pretty much writing all the time. So yeah, that was a that was a learning period uh, for especially for me. Uh, and it was a wonderful time. Uh, I look back on those days now and uh, with with a lot of joy and uh, a lot of astonishment because we really we really became culture vultures, so to speak, taking in all forms of art, uh, literature, film. Yeah, I mean, the whole San Francisco scene was, was kind of percolating at that point, and you got like the airplane and, and all these bands uh, coming up, and, and that must have been exciting too. After the British invasion stuff, you've got this stuff happening in your own city, right? Yeah, and it, it started up pretty quick. Uh, two years after the Beatles, and six, from 64 up, uh, all of a sudden, there are, there are, I don't know, thousands of long-haired people walking around San Francisco, you know. And it became evident pretty quick that people that were about maybe six to seven, eight years older than me uh, were now forming bands. Most of these cats were folk players in the early 60s. And I think one of the reasons why the uh, musicians in the San Francisco bands were so good was that they came out of the folk arena. And when you play folk guitar, uh, you learn little tricks. Uh, like the D chord thing that you could do with folk or the A chord thing. Uh, and, you know, you you play some of this for somebody and they think you know how to play because, you know, it's very easy to do. And, you know, you can, you, maybe you've been playing guitar for a week, but you know how to do this or that. So, you know, everybody goes, yeah, you know how to play guitar, you know. So, yeah, <laughs> these guys brought in a lot of technique uh, to the electric guitar format. And I'll tell you, you know, when I think about Yorma back then, I think about Cipollina or, or, or Garcia. All of these guys became really good electric guitar players on stage, uh, which is not an easy thing to do. Today, it's different. Today, you got fuzz tones, you know, 
you don't really have to zero in on the right chord. You just hit hit it with your right hand. It makes a sound and and it's big and you know everybody's going whoa, you know. But back in the early days, we didn't have all that sustain, you know. Uh, go that that electric guitars ended up having years later. So you know you you didn't know how to play, you know because uh, mistakes were really louder because you're electric now. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. And you know besides besides me and Roy, uh, going through going through this rock school uh, process of learning different cultures of music, I am learning one guitar player after another. You know, I started with, with Chuck Berry in 62, then I moved up to Keith Richards and George Harrison in 64. By 65, uh, I'm studying uh, Robbie Robertson and Michael Bloomfield. Uh, and then 66 comes around, and I, I switch over to Eric Clapton. So I'm doing all this other studying besides this, this right. stuff that, that Roy and I were doing, you know. It was an incredible learning period. Yeah, I can imagine. And, and uh, yeah, there's it's starting to rain. Hold on, let me close it. Hail. Oh, it's hail. It's hail. It's Haley. <laughs> Get out of here. Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. We closed. We closed the uh, the door. The sliding door. <laughs> Going back to, you know, Roy and, and the first Groovy's recordings, yeah. um, you know, the Sneakers 10-inch album, how did you go about doing that? Because you guys released that yourself. Yeah, the Sneakers recording was, was uh, a session we did uh, at Coast Recording Studios uh, here in San Francisco. And uh, we only had enough money for seven songs, you know. So uh, when, we, when we finished that session... Our manager said, well, you know, what, what kind of a record are we going to put out? You can't have an EP with seven songs. Anyway, he found a, 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 a pressing plant that was still doing 10-inch yeah. pressings, uh, you know, for, for, for uh, 78 speeds and, and whatever. So we, we decided to put out the 10-inch. Uh, and, uh, and, again, all of these decisions are, are not intentional. They're, they're made it's, – it's all by proxy. You, you know what I mean? Right, right, yeah. So how did you distribute sneakers? I mean, how did you even get this 10-inch album into people's hands? You know, we, we made the transition from being a garage band pretty quickly uh, in, at the end of 66, and we started bringing in original material. And uh, at that point, uh, Tim, Tim was our second lead guitar player. And, you know, we, him and I would switch off. On and off, you know. Sometimes I'd be doing the lead, and sometimes he'd be doing the lead, and sometimes we'd both be playing lead at the same time. So uh, that was settled because he was rhythm guitar player for a while, but he wanted to, he went on to play some lead too. And Timmy was also a good harp player. Um, so anyway, Roy and I are now writing songs. God, uh, I'm doing the arrangements. Um, he's he's writing out structures and and lyrics. And uh, we come up with uh, with all these songs that we uh, recorded on uh, sneakers, uh, "Golden Clouds," "I'm Drowning," "My Yada," you know, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And we ha we we at that by that point in '67, we were pretty much an original band, 
and we had stepped up because all the local San Francisco bands were playing original music now by this point, you know. So it was it was an it was an evolution that uh, started out as a as a teaching process, and then it became uh, a creative process, you know. Right, right. And then let's talk about how you made the next step, because the next step is that you actually get signed to a real major label record deal with Epic Records. How did that come about? Well, that was that was pretty interesting because um, we had a friend who worked at uh, at the counter at Tower Records, and uh, when we when we pressed up sneakers, uh, he put those sneakers right next to the cash register on the counter, so people would come up with a stack of albums. And they and they'd see sneakers. They go, oh, yeah, I'll take this too. You know, <laughs> yeah. it's like what they do in the grocery stores now. You know, with the certain types of candy on the counter there by the by the cash register. You got you got your stuff. You get to the counter, and then you oh, I want to get some more stuff. You know. So anyway, we ended up uh, we sold out the first pressing, fifteen hundred. We did another pressing, another fifteen hundred. Within two months, that sold out. So we did one more pressing. We ended up selling over 4,500 copies of sneakers within about a five-month period. Now, the guys from Epic Records who came up to check us out and, and ended up signing us, um, I remember talking to Chuck Gregory about this. He was one of the A&R guys. And I said, uh, well, what, what gave you the, the initiative to uh, pull us in? And he said, well, you know, usually... When we hear about a local label that sold 1,500 copies, let's say in Baltimore or somewhere, uh, we look at that and we think, well, if we could sell 1,500 in Nashville and in, in uh, Tucson and, every, and all these big cities, you know, that's when we sign a group. You know, you kind of, kind of, cr- you got to cross that 1,500, uh, you know, threshold yeah. uh, in sales uh, to get people like us interested. You guys sold 4,500. You know, he said, he looked at me, he said, it was a no-brainer to sign you guys, you know. I mean, you were selling product. So now a whole new chapter starts uh, in the band. And uh, all the all the decision-making on what songs were chosen uh, for Super Snaz, uh were in Roy's hands at that time. That changed later when Flamingo and Teenage had, I started taking that that process over. But on Super Snaz, it's it's all Roy's decisions. Uh, he decides to do Rock and Ammonia, Boogie Boogie Flu as a single, etc., uh, uh, etc. Et you know. Right. Yeah. And 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 tell me about the recording of uh, Super Snares. You went down to L.A. for that, right? Yeah, we were at the Columbia Studios on Sunset Boulevard, which was basically a factory, uh, music factory. I mean, uh, you know, Simon and Gar- we had to stop uh, recording for two weeks because Simon and Garfunkel. Uh, we're cutting a song for uh, a movie. I think it was The Boxer. Uh, so, you know, you walk down the hallway at, at uh, Columbia Music to go to the restroom, and you look, you walk past the door with a window, and you look in, and there's uh, Carol Burnett and Martha Ray getting vocal lessons. You know what I mean? And this was a real music factory. So it was a wonderful experience. I mean, coming straight out of high school. And going to one of the biggest yeah. recording studios in the country, you know, uh, and that was a three three and a half month uh, session. We have uh, Brian Rohan, our our lawyer, somehow had managed to talk 
epic into let, giving us unlimited studio time. So, you know, for three and a half months, man, we're, we're recording five days a week the album called Super Snaps. And we've got session guys coming in uh, because we we were signed a, a, on a contract that's called a variety artist contract, which means we were signed as vocalists. She wasn't there on time. I told her I was frantic. She said that she was blind. Oh, and uh, even at that time in 69, Recording studios in America, didn't, record companies didn't really want uh, players in the band to be playing on the album because uh, you know, they want session guys. They want it to, to, to be done quickly and not to have to spend too much money in production. So it was loosening up by, by the end of the 60s and we were allowed to play on our record. But we were also allowed to hire studio guys. And we did. We hired Mike Lang, a piano player. We hired... Uh, um, Curtis Amy and his trio of saxophone players, um, and uh, you know, so it was it was a different type of album. Yeah. Uh, after that, we never did that again. The only other musician that would be on our recordings after after those those early years was Dave Edmonds. You know, because uh, if if we cut an album, I would go to SIR. I would rent a whole bunch of instruments, harpsichords, tamboras acoustic 12s, whatever. We'd go into the studio with all this stuff and then we'd just start recording, you know, and play everything ourselves, you know. So this is also the period where you pl you're playing a lot in LA. You're playing at the Whiskey. Um, you know, let's talk about that a bit because uh, you got to uh, you got to meet a lot of interesting uh, musicians and jam with them and stuff, right? Yeah, well, the funny thing is is that we weren't too lucky in San Francisco. Um, we were a British, uh, uh, visually British-based style band. And uh, the hippies weren't too pleased to see glitter coats on stage. Uh, so by the time we got to L.A., everything did a 180. I mean, our luck went from being unlucky to extremely lucky. Because our first show at the Whiskey, we're opening for Barry Maguire. Yeah. Uh, who's Who's got the big hit, Eve of Destruction, you know. The P.F. Sloan song. And uh, that first Friday night, uh, we do our set, and uh, Mario, uh, uh, who's running the whiskey, he comes up, he says, you guys sounded great. So then McGuire goes on, and we're backstage just hanging out and drinking and jamming, and uh, all of a sudden, his set's over, and uh, Mario, all of a sudden, we hear Mario running up the stairs, and he's kicking chairs, and he, he walks into our room, and he goes, you guys are headlining tomorrow night. McGuire's opening. And, and then he turns around and he, he jumps out of the room, you know. So now we're headlining. <laughs> and uh, for the next two nights. And, you know, I mean, the audience is filled with, with movie stars, you know, famous people uh, in rock and in film. Uh, so we're getting an incredible exposure that weekend. And uh, Mario uh, comes up to us on Sunday night and he goes, you know, you guys are really cool. How would you like a residency here for a while? And uh, that was like, wow, far out, you know. So the next couple of weeks and months while we're recording Super Snaz, we're playing on the weekends at the Whiskey. 
And we're opening for Canned Heat. We're opening for Mountain. We're opening for Spirit. John Mayle with Mick Taylor. Taylor. On and on and on, you know. And uh, backstage at the Whiskey upstairs, there was more music going on there than there was <laughs> in the room downstairs, you know, in the club. I mean, the musicians that were hanging out backstage were always jamming, okay? You know, the minute you got off stage and you went up to your dressing room, uh, you lit up a cigarette, and then you picked up your hummingbird uh, Gibson started playing again, you know? <laughs> Somebody else would walk in and go, hey, what's that? And then they come back, they bring their guitar in, and pretty soon you're jamming with them, you know? So this this was like an amazing time in my life. And because I knew so many different styles, you know, by the time I'm opening for John Mayall, I've learned slide guitar, um, uh, Mississippi Delta slide, and I'm playing that in my in my uh, dressing room. And Mick Taylor walks in, and he goes, "Hey, who's that you're playing?" I go, "That's Vance Lipscomb." So he he leaves. He comes back with his guitar. Now me and him are jamming, you know. And this was the way it was. Uh, it was it was a fantastic period of, of uh, culture and art just fusing together all these different groups of people, different types of music, and, and you know when I think about it now, I, I, I'm just astonished at what a golden age it was. You know. wasn't Leslie West, it was Mick Taylor. If it wasn't Mick Taylor, it was Bob Hyde and Al Wilson. And uh, Bob and Al were, were uh, really tripping on, on the way I played slide guitar. And so they came in and we, we, we started jamming and talking blues. And, you know, Bob said, hey, listen, uh, I, have a, I have a gigantic uh, 78 blues uh, collection. Why don't we come up to my house? Uh, and uh, we can we can continue this. So after the whiskey show was over, uh, uh, Al, Bob, and I drove up to Bob's house in Laurel Canyon, and we dropped acid, the three of us. And then Bob started playing us uh, all these old, you know, seventy eights, you know. And as the as the night went by, we got more and more stoned. Finally, Al says, "Hey, listen, I'm going to crash, guys." He goes out in the backyard. He's sleeping in a tent in Bob Height's backyard, okay, uh, in a sleeping bag. And uh, I, I decided to go out there, too. I said, you got an extra sleeping bag? He goes, yeah. So anyway, me and Al are in the sleeping bags in this tent, and, and I'm, you know, we're still on acid. I mean, this is, this is white lightning. You know, it's 1,500 micrograms of LSD-25. So we're just, things are melting, trees are melting, cars are flying in the air. I mean, it, you know, we're stoned, man. <laughs> I'm looking at the silhouette uh, of Bob's house, you know, which is this black spot. And I noticed that the left side of the house is, is tilted. And then I, then I realized that the weight of, of 25,078s is sinking that side of the house, you know, into the ground. Okay. And I, I tap Al's head and he goes, what's up? I go, Hey, uh, tell me if I'm wrong, man. Does it look like Bob's house is sinking on the left side or not, or what? And he looks up and he goes, holy shit. And so we we get out of, out of the tent. We go, we run into Bob's house and, and wake up uh, him and his wife in their bedroom. 
And his wife's really pissed off. She goes, hey, you know, how dare you come in here? And, and I said, hey, listen, your house is sinking. And Bob jumps out, you know, two feet up in the air. He goes, what do you mean the house is sinking? You know? And I said, come outside. And I showed him. And he goes, holy shit. You know? So we ran back into the house and we spent the rest of the night moving half of the 78s into Bob's bedroom. So we could kind of kind of level out the house. <laughs> and that's that's just one that's just one experience from this incredible time. I mean, uh, it, it, it was really an amazing, amazing time. You know, the night we played with Barry Maguire, uh, there's a little uh, parking lot behind the whiskey, and it's, and it's kind of a downward hill. And my VW was there at the bottom. And, of course, I wanted to leave. I couldn't get out because Maguire's uh, 53 Chevy was behind me, you know. So I go back into the whiskey and I find Barry and I go, Barry, you got to give me your keys. You know, either you move the car or give me your keys. He gives me the keys. So anyway, I go back out there. And of course, he's got, he doesn't have a gear shift. He's got a column on, on the steering wheel. And I'm trying to figure out how to get into re reverse. You know? <laughs> I finally get into reverse. I move the car. I get my car out. I put his car back in and then I split, you know, and like, you know, Hours later, at 2.30 in the morning, I'm at Tiny Nailers with a bunch of people having uh, breakfast. And Barry McGuire bursts into the, the restaurant. And he goes, where's Cyril Jordan? <laughs> I forgot to give him his keys. <laughs> I was so stoned. I just split, and I, and I had his keys on me, you know. So I give him his keys, and that was that was the last I saw Barry. I've never, I never saw him again. But... Uh, <laughs> you know, you must remember we were all uh, pretty good musicians. We were all in a professional club, but we were all on drugs. We were stoned out of our minds, you know. So the the stuff that was going on around us was just unbelievably funny, you know. Tell me about some of the the movie stars you saw, because you mentioned a few names to me in the past. Uh, at uh, that first weekend with McGuire on Saturday night, after we played, we were backstage, and all of a sudden, uh, these two Puerto Rican ladies come in with, with Cesar Romero, who was playing the Joker in the Batman TV show at that time, right? And Caesar comes in, and he's raving about us, and he wants to buy everybody martinis, and, you know. So the next thing I know, I'm hanging out with Cesar Romero. I mean, we, we bonded. We bonded real fast. And, you know, we were telling jokes and Caesar's telling me stories about Hollywood. I mean, Caesar goes back to the silent era. I mean, he's in The Thin Man, which is one of the earliest films in Hollywood. I think it's 31 or 32. But uh, so he had all these great stories, you know, about, about wild stuff that happened there. Uh, and then uh, Sunday night, he comes back up backstage and he goes, hey, I brought a friend. Uh, he's down at the bar, and I went, oh, yeah, who's that? And he goes, uh, Rock Hudson. And I go, well, tell, tell him to come on up. And he goes, nah, Rock, Rock doesn't, he's a kind of a shy guy. He doesn't really like going hanging out backstage. So anyway, me and Caesar go down to the to the club room, and Rock's, Rock's at the counter at the bar. And I, I come over, and I'm introduced to Rock Hudson, who is like the 
biggest human being I have ever been next to. I mean, I came up to his elbow. This guy was gigantic, you know. Uh, his wingtips were like, I don't know, size 82, you know. <laughs> biggest fucking feet I ever fucking saw. <laughs> so we've become, I've become friends with Rock. And for the next, uh, uh, during that, that summer, for the next couple of uh, months and weekends, uh, there would be one night on the weekend that Rock and Caesar would show up and hang out with us. And that was really, really cool. And again, if it wasn't Rock Hudson at the whiskey uh, while we were playing, uh, it's it's Eric Burden and Hilton Valentine. And they're in the audience, you know. And I'm a big fan. I still am. So if I saw somebody from the scene back then uh, hanging out somewhere where I was, I would immediately approach them and introduce myself, and then we would bond and we would become friends, which is what happened with me and Eric and Hilton. And uh, same thing happened. Eric said, hey, let, let's continue this. We'll go up to our, our mansion in Bel Air, and, and uh, I got some real good LSD. So, you know, I dropped acid with Hilton and Eric <laughs> that night, you know. <laughs> I mean, don't, tell, don't was, tell me that house was leaning too. No, no, that house. Uh, it was a beautiful mansion. We were out, out in the backyard well, where the swimming pool was. And there were topless women uh, playing in the pool. And me and, and Eric and Hilton are talking about how, how weird it was to turn people on in Newcastle uh, to rhythm and blues via Ray Charles, you know, because there was nobody else playing that stuff there. And they got going real quick. You'll, you'll, I, I'm just doing my next column on the animals, so you'll hear that story in that in that column on how they got got how they got going real fast, you know. Well, let me tell you this one more story. One night, uh, there's a guy hanging up, uh, hanging against the wall uh, when I come into the dressing room, and I look at him, and I and there's a deja vu thing going. I'm trying to figure out. I know this guy, you know, and of course I do. It is the child actor Tommy Nolan. Now Tommy Nolan is one of the kids in, in uh, the seven-year itch with Marilyn Monroe. Okay. He's Tom Yule's little boy who's got a space helmet on, you know. And he was also in Thriller. He's all over television, man, in the early 60s. So here he is hanging out in 69 at the Whiskey backstage. I come up to Tommy. I go, hey, man, I'm a big fan. I start mentioning all the movies he's in, you know. We become instant friends. And, you know, Tommy says, hey, you smoke pot? And I go, yeah. And I pull out, I pull out this joint and give it to him. So we start getting stoned, and he goes, hey, you know, I got to go uh, pick up some some pot right now. You want to come with me? So I go, sure, I, I need a new dealer. So anyway, we drive down Sunset. We get to this apartment building, and we get up to the top floor apartment, and he knocks on the door, and the door opens, and it's David Marks of the Beach Boys, okay? And he's got a Pendleton shirt on. He's got uh, sandals. He's got bleached blonde hair. He's still a surfer. And uh, he's selling pot. And he, you know, this is where Tommy gets his marijuana from. So now I got a new dealer and I'm hanging out with David Marks, you know. Uh, the, the Whiskey A Go Go was, was this incredible nexus, okay, where you could like just leak into all different areas of the entertainment industry just because you met somebody who was part of that arena or something at the whiskey. And then the friendship would just bloom on from that point on. But I told David, I, you know, Marks, I said, you know, 
you're the reason I'm I'm in this thing. And he goes, what do you mean? And I go, well, I got uh, uh, the Beach Boys album in uh, Surfing USA in, in 62. And there's a photo of you guys in the studio with your Fender guitars. And uh, your names are there and how old you are. And I'm reading this and I look and I go, hey, that guy's 14 years old. I go, hey, I'm 14 years old. You know? <laughs> So that was that was another door that opened where I went. Yeah, maybe I ought to get into doing this, you know. So yeah, Mark's had a Mark's had a big influence on me. I told Al Jardine that story years later, a couple of years ago, and he got a big kick out of it, you know. And then he told me the story of how he ended up uh, uh, in in the Beach Boys. He uh, was in a folk group and he uh, played stand up bass. So the Beach Boys need a bass player. So Al comes in and he's trying to learn how to play the electric bass and he can't do it. You know, the session's happening in a couple of hours. So Brian says, what's wrong, Al? And, and he goes, yeah, I don't know, man. I, I can't get the hang of this. So Brian takes it off his shoulders and puts it on and he starts playing bass. You know, I mean, it, this, this is how Brian became one of the world's greatest bass players, you know. <laughs> Let's let's start talking about Flamingo. You know, tell me about you know some of the writing some of the songs for that. I think you had a great story about writing uh, "Coming After Me." Yeah, we uh, we uh, were we're getting ready to leave LA. Uh, We've been down there for a couple of months gigging and whatever. And uh, Roy and I are packing up, uh, and uh, we get into Roy's '57 Chevy. And we're driving down Sunset. We're going to make a left on Highland, and then we're going to get on the freeway, and we're going to drive up to the city. You know. Anyway, there's a roadblock going on. There's state troopers, man. We so now we got to find another way to get to Highland. And every time we make a left turn or a right turn, we we hit another roadblock. I don't know what the hell was going on, but there was something happening. And uh, so I I I got my hummingbird in in the front seat. I start I start playing a part. You know, and uh, Roy starts Roy starts singing out his uh, lyrics. He goes, hey, uh, eight straight eight state troopers with a meat hook." You know, <laughs> so we finally we finally get out of L.A. We're on the freeway now, and we have written this song called "Coming After Me." So now I start playing I start playing this other thing, uh, some part I had made up. And Royce goes, what's that? I go, I don't know. You like it? He goes, yeah, keep playing it. So now Roy's starting to, to make up lyrics. We wrote all those songs on Flamingo in the eight-hour drive back up to San Francisco. By the time we got, by, by the time we got to the city, we had a whole album finished, okay? <laughs> you know, Go to Rock Tonight, uh, uh, Roadhouse, uh, and we get back to the city, and our manager says, hey, I got a call from Basin Street West, which was a club in North Beach. And Ray Charles is headlining, and uh, uh, they want you to open, you know. And I'm like, oh, Ray Charles wants us to open? Get out of here, you know. So Roy and I wrote a song to commemorate the occasion. Uh, we ripped off 
uh, one of Ray's uh, intro parts from a song called I Don't Need No Doctor. I don't need and it's his saxophones, and they're going, dun, 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 you know. So that's the lick from Heading for the Texas Border. <laughs> now, a year later, okay, we get another call from Basin Street, and it's Ray's back in town, and Ray wants you to open again, right? He must have tripped out. When he heard us rip off his song. <laughs> so anyway, we're back in LA. We're it's another summer. We're we're doing we're doing a residency at the whiskey. And uh, Ike Ike Turner shows up with his uh, his manager, Gerhard Augustine, who is the head of A&R at UA. And they come backstage, and, and, and uh, they're raving about the band, and uh, they want us to open for Ike and Tina Turner, the Ike and Tina Turner Review, every time they play California, you know? So that's like, wow, what's, you know, what's going on here? So one night, I'm, I'm backstage with Ike uh, uh, snorting cocaine, uh, at the uh, Haunted House, which was a club on Sunset Strip. Had all these skeletons on the outside. It was a really cool club. And this is right before the Stones opened, uh, 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 the Ike and Tina opened for the Stones. It's like about eight months right before that. So I'm backstage with, with Ike, and I, and I look up at Ike, and I go, hey, how did you find out about us? And uh, he snorts a line, and he looks at me, he goes, uh, Ray told me. And I go, Ray? Ray who? He looks at me like I'm an idiot. He goes, Ray Charles, man. You know, the man. So, yeah, Ray Charles told Ike about us. <laughs> and I'll tell you, Mike, this is how it it worked back then. If you were an unknown band and you were now on a circuit and you were opening for people like Ike Turner, who are, who are on major labels, you know, artists that were on major labels, if they liked your, your group, uh, they would pull you in for more shows, and then maybe an A&R person from their label would come to see them and see you also and get interested in you. And this is how you got pulled in in the old days. So how did you end up on Kama Sutra then? Well, Kama Sutra's, the Kama Sutra story is right out of a movie script. Uh, we're doing our, our, our second U.S. tour, and we're in the East Coast, and we end up in New York at the Hotel Gorham, we gotta we gotta stay there for two weeks. We don't have any gigs for two weeks. Our next shows are in Pennsylvania, so we're, you know, we're we've got a per diem, a daily per diem of seventy five cents each a day. Okay. <laughs> I mean, we hit New York and we're broke, you know, and we're holed up in this hotel. We keep uh, re rolling the same roach over and over. <laughs> Alfred gets us the ugliest hooker you ever saw. I'm outside in front of the Gorham one night smoking a stinger and the, and the station wagon pulls up and it's Alfred and this ugly woman. Yeah. And I look in and, and 
you know, Alfred's behind the woman and he's pointing at her and, you know, he's putting his finger inside of his other hand like, hey, you can fuck her now, you know. So she came in and she fucked everybody in the band, you know, <laughs> took care of us, gave us a lube job, whatever the fuck. And, uh, you know, so the next day I go to this restaurant I found where the waitress knew I was I was down and out and I could get a big bowl of pea soup and a glass of milk. And she would always bring extra crackers, you know, and that was that was my meal for the day, you know. So I do that. I, co I come back to the hotel uh, and go to sleep, wake up the next day, and there's a knock on the door at 10 in the morning. Now, the day before, uh, we had played the Fillmore East because our roadies had come back from the Fillmore that afternoon and said that the opening band's truck broke down on the freeway and they need an opening band. So our roadies came back and said, come on, man, let's go to the Fillmore. You got, you, got, you got a gig. So we go to the Fillmore, and we knock on the back door, and they open it, and they go, who the hell is this? And we go, we heard you guys need a band. We're the Flaming Groovies. And the stage manager goes, oh, great, come on in. You know. <laughs> so the next thing we, we know, we're on stage at the Fillmore. It's a packed house. And uh, we, we, we had a version of Sweet Jane we had just worked out for New York, you know, Lou Reed's classic song. We had a killer version of it, and that was our opening song. And apparently, Richard Robinson and Lenny Kay were in the audience, okay? And this knocked them out. Uh, the third song into the set, I look up at the audience, and I see Bill Graham come walking down the aisle. And he looks up, and he all of a sudden he realizes the band he hates the most is on stage in his club. <laughs> the fuck are you guys doing here you know <laughs> so we go back to the hotel you know we go to sleep and the next day there's a knock on my door at 10 in the morning and it's richard robinson and lenny k and he introduces himself i and i know him from being the editor of hit parader you know magazine and he says i'm working for kama sutra now and i want to sign you guys to kama sutra and i said really I said, "How much? How much are you going to give us?" He says, "Oh, I, right now I can I can advance you sixteen thousand dollars." So we go straight to uh, uh, the Brill Building, uh, where Neil, Neil Bogart's uh, Buddha label is, and we meet Neil Bogart and we do the deal, and that's how we got signed to to Kama Sutra. That's why I mentioned it's kind of like a movie script. You know, a, a band a band goes into New York and they're broke and they got to wait for two weeks, you know, and, and they're uh, skinning cockroaches for food or whatever the fuck, you know. <laughs> you know, they do this show and they get, it out, they get signed to a major label. I mean, when does this ever happen? <laughs> it, ne it, never, it never happens, you know. So after that, did you record Flamingo, like, right away? Well, we went back. We went back to San Francisco, did some shows. Then we went back down to L.A. and we're doing a bunch of gigs down there. And then we're trying to get out of town, and there's state troopers with a meat hook everywhere. So we write the whole we write the whole album on the way back to San Francisco. And then we call Richard. We go. We just wrote a whole album uh, full of music. And Richard flies out to hear this stuff, and he goes, "That sounds great. Let's cut an album." So we cut that album uh, in San Francisco. And uh, that's my least favorite Groovy's album.
when we cut our first record, Sneakers, we were on, we were recording on a four-track machine. We go to Super Snaz, we go to eight-track. We go to Flamingo, we go to 12-track. Now, 12-track was an inch wide, just like eight-track. But now you've got four, now all the, now all the tracks are squelched. You see what I'm saying? And I, I just, I just didn't like the sound of that. When we go to cut teenage, we're we're now sixteen track. So as the years went by and we were recording a new album, the technology was advancing yearly, and so every record was the the latest technology. You know what I mean? It wasn't until we got to Bell Studios in New York where it was the first time that I that I was exposed to not only a sixteen track tape recorder but a Swiss German Studer tape recorder. And that's when Studer became my favorite recording device. And when I got to Rockfield a couple of years later, I was thrilled to see the Studer at Rockfield. It was like, you know, yeah, you guys know too, you know. I mean, by that by that time, it was obvious everybody wants to record on Studer, you know. Right, that Bell Studio sound. So now we're at Teenage Head. Yeah, now we're at Teenage Head. Which may even be my favorite Groovy's album. That thing's just loaded with hits. Well, what happened at, uh, at Teenage Head, or actually the year before, is that I started uh, hanging out with Michael Wilhelm, uh, the lead guitar player of the Charlatans. And Michael taught me uh, finger-picking Mississippi blues style. Uh, he taught me slide guitar. So now... When Roy and I are working on tunes, uh, I've got the ability to play slide guitar now. So my arrangements are, are getting more and more intricate. And uh, that year, right before we cut Teenage, uh, I went down to uh, the Big Sur Folk Festival to see the Beach Boys uh, play. Um, this was the first time I think the Beach Boys had done a live show in a couple of years. Uh, of course, Brian Wilson wasn't there. But I'm part of the entourage of the Beach Boys, and we when we drive in backstage and start mingling, and uh, all of a sudden I become I get introduced to Kim Fowley, you know, and me and Kim have become friends. And of course, the next thing after meeting Kim, uh, we both drop LSD, you know, together, <laughs> and we're we're stoned out of our minds. Okay. And I remember, you know, Kim's walking around introducing me to people, and Linda Ronstadt walks by, and he goes, hey, Linda, come here. I want to introduce you to Cyril Jones and the Flame Grooves. And she kind of gives me this limp wrist, you know, and doesn't even look at me when, when uh, you know, I say my name. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, fuck you. <laughs> so I start laughing hysterically. And... Uh, Kim says, hey, hey, calm down, calm down. We got we, we got things to do. We got serious business to take care of. And I said, what are you talking about? And he goes, we got to get some teenage head right now. You know. <laughs> he is now asking all the girls and women that are walking by if he if they know where he could get some teenage head, you know. And I'm in hysterics. You know, I laughed so much that that day. The next day. When I woke up, my mouth was wide open, locked, and and I couldn't close it for about an hour. You know, I had polio when I was a kid, uh, in my in my neck and jaw, 
So this this eight-hour acid trip where I was laughing out loud constantly had really affected this condition. <laughs> so I get back to San Francisco, and I'm telling Roy about Teenage Head. And at that point, Jimmy Page and I had become friends the year before when we opened for the Yardbirds. Now Led Zeppelin was getting ready uh, to take over uh, AM radio in, in the world. And uh, we're down in L.A. hanging out with Jimmy, and I go pick up uh, his bandmates, uh, Jones and, and Bonham, at the airport. And it's funny, you know, they, this is 69. They get off the, uh, out of the plane, and they're wearing Levi's tennis shoes, uh, Converse tennis shoes, white T-shirts, and motorcycle jackets. Now, what does that remind you of? This, this is the, dec- the decorum of the Ramones, you know what I mean? Yeah. But here, here they are in 69 dressed that way. So anyway, I introduced myself. I said, Jimmy asked me to pick you up. And uh, we drop acid and I take him to Knott's Berry Farm, you know. <laughs> On acid, you know. So I'm hanging out with, with Jimmy and, and the guys in Led Zepp, you know. And, of course, I get exposed to, uh, at one of their rehearsals, to uh, the lick on Whole lot of Love. You know, you know, one of the greatest guitar licks of all time. And so I make up my own version, which is, you know, <laughs> and I wonder, one Sunday afternoon, uh, having dinner at Roy's house, I'm, I'm playing that. And he goes, what the hell is that? And I go, yeah, it's my takeoff on Led Zeppelin, you know. And then uh, I mentioned Teenage Head to him. So we start writing Teenage Head. And uh, our take on it was that it was going to be, uh, it was going to, the song was going to be like as if the mothers had done their version of Led Zeppelin. You know. <laughs> and we were doing a parody. Of this, of this thing that Led Zeppelin had come up with, you know, <laughs> I'm a monster, you know. <laughs> <laughs> now the funny thing is, is that in the meantime, uh, Tim Lynch, without anybody knowing it, has been doing uh, um, heroin, hard drugs, you know. And he gets busted. Um, so we're getting ready to cut the Teenage Head album, and we get a call from his, his wife, Barbara, that Tim's in jail, and he's been busted. So there's there's a, a, a situation that happens by proxy. You know, before Teenage Head, on the Flamingo album, uh, Roy was still playing guitar. Uh, so we were a three-guitar band. Like, you know, we yeah. were a three-guitar band before Moby Grape, you know. So Roy stops playing uh, guitar, and he's now a lead singer. He's doing a Jagger thing, you know, where he's leaning on the mic and shit. So now we go to New York to cut Teenage, and I'm the only instrumentalist. So now I'm not only doing arranging, I'm doing all the overdubs on on uh, on each track, you know, one, one track after another. And uh, Timmy comes out after three weeks of us recording, and he uh, he plays the harp on Teenage Head, 
Um, he plays uh, guitar on uh, rhythm guitar on Doctor Boogie and also uh, guitar on um, Evil Hearted Ada. He takes a lead break in Whiskey Woman, and that's it. Everything else is me. If you're hearing guitars, it's all me, you know. And this is this is where I cut. Uh, this was kind of like a boot camp for me, uh, for what I needed to know when when uh, Roy left the band, I would take over the band, and now uh, lyric writing and everything else would be my my job. And that that uh, four weeks in in Bell Studios, Cutting Teenage, really helped me fine tune my my talents for that for that kind of a, a venture. You know. Right. Let's just wait. Let's just wait for the dog to finish his solo here. <laughs> yeah, let me close this door. So anyway, we cut teenage. Um, we go back home, and then we we uh, start to tour the East Coast again. We go to Detroit, and uh, that's where Roy and I wrote "Slow Death." So "Slow Death" was the last song that I wrote with Roy, and uh, uh, it, you know it would have been on on the Teenage Head album, but. Uh, Everything fell apart with Kama Sutra at that point, um, and they they loved the idea. They loved the idea of the name Teenage Head until one day I think somebody mentioned to Bogart that look, there were two versions of what a Teenage Head was back then. Uh, one version was that you were you had a a young teenage girl uh, giving you head, you know, underage. The other rap on Teenage Head was that people who did drugs back then and who knew about about uh, the airplane or whatever, we were known as heads. We were all heads. And, of course, if you were still a teenager, then you were a teenage head. You know what I mean? But anyway, Bogart found out the other uh, uh, meaning and got real squirrely and didn't want to put the title on the album. That's why on the back it says, The Flaming Groovies Present Teenage Head, like as if it was a movie title or something, you know. And they just backed down and lost all interest immediately. So we kind of lose our connection there. Then Roy uh, starts to decide to uh, change the format of the band. Um, He's going to rewrite Louie Louie and... You know, Danny and me are going, what are you talking about? And yeah, that's when we had a falling out, you know. And uh, it wasn't, it wasn't, Roy wasn't out of the band three weeks when I find out that my favorite local San Francisco band, Loose Gravel, is losing their lead singer, Chris Wilson. So I call up Chris and I go, hey, when we go out and have a drink, talk about this, you know. And he says, well, you know, I don't have any, any job. I don't, I don't have a place to stay, so I'm going back to my mom's house in Boston. And I said, well, you could stay with me and my mom. So that's how me and Chris got together. Uh, he moves into my mom's house with me. And now, because we're living together, we, we can work on music uh, and songwriting every day, you know. And at this point, I'm working on Shake Some Action. Actually, I'm working on three different uh, ideas for songs. I've got three different chord structures that are really, really cool. Um, Most of them are verse sections. Uh, There's one intro section. So for three months, I'm trying to finish these songs, and I'm not getting anywhere. And at the end of three months, I decided one night, okay, I'm going to put all three of them together, 
all three ideas together. Wow. And that became Shake Some Action. Oh, that's great. I said to Chris, I said, would you mind writing another verse for me? And so Chrissy wrote the last verse, and that's when we became uh, songwriting partners. Wow. And that's a whole other chapter. That's but, a whole other chapter, yeah. But can we back up to the... Because uh, last night when we were talking on the telephone, you told me the story of how you wrote Slow Death, like in some a little more detail. So I think uh, the listeners would like to hear that. When you arrive in Detroit? Well, we, we'd gone back to Detroit. It had been a year since we'd been there. Um, and we had made a lot of friends there. So we were really looking forward to seeing these people again, you know. So we get back to Detroit. And uh, we find out that these people are either dead from ODing or they're in jail. And we do our show. We get back to our, our motel, which is this... It's in Dearborn, uh, and it's this porno motel. It's like, you know, purple velvet wallpaper with gold Rococo lining and shit. <laughs> it's really depressing, you know. <laughs> We're like bumming out, you know. We're kind of sitting there and just melting. And I pick up my Armstrong, and I make up the lick of slow death. Do -do 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 -do, you know. And Roy goes, wow, what's that? I go, ah, it's just something I was messing with. And so, yeah, we write Slow Death that night based on this experience of all of our friends are dead from overdosing on heroin. I mean, songwriting's weird. I mean, sometimes you, know, you write a song in 10 minutes. Other times it takes months. Uh, and then sometimes you write a song about something that happened to you that you don't tell anybody about. And that song is uh, called Whiskey Woman, which is about a woman uh, that worked at the whiskey. She was a waitress there. Nancy Throckmorton. And I fell in love with Nancy. And uh, she didn't marry me. She married John Mayo. You know, instead. Oh, wow. And I and I remember one night, I'm knocking on Nancy's door at 2 in the morning. She lived right above Tower Records off Sunset in an apartment building, and there's no answer. And then I see this guy walking down the hall, and it's John. And I had heard her girlfriend's mention to Nancy a couple of weeks earlier that John was wondering if he could see you. So I figured that's the John who they were talking about. And so I looked up, I said, now, nah, you, you, you want to see Nancy? She's not here. So me and Mayo go back outside. We get we get into my VW, my '54 VW, and we start bar hopping. You know, we drank we drank all night long. But anyway, I write this song, "Whiskey Woman," because my heart's broken. You know, and I don't tell anybody about this incident. I just wrote a song about it. So songwriting's weird. I mean, sometimes it's because of this. Sometimes it's because of that. There's different reasons why a song was written slow death was written uh based on our experience of death 
uh, in our in our society. You know, and the irony of all of this, Mike, is now, years after Roy's death, um, <clears throat> he didn't take his own advice. You know, he did. He overdid yeah. drugs, and he became an alcoholic, and his guts turned to clay. Yeah, you know, yeah. What I mean? very sad. You knew Roy for for you know most of your life. I mean, you know, what are your thoughts about uh, Roy Loney? Yeah, and, and Roy and I were tight uh, every day for for six years. Yeah, and you were about to do a tour, right, of uh, Europe when uh, when Roy passed. Yeah. So um, the first six years of Roy and I, are, like I said, we were together every day. And Roy had an influence on me that uh, has lasted to this to this day. I'll never be the same, uh, having known somebody as talented as Roy. He opened up a, a world of culture to me that was just amazing. Whether it was film, uh, art, music, all different types of American music, whatever, uh, animation. Uh, Roy and I had had uh, many affinities, and. Uh, uh, like I said, uh, he he is he's part of me. He's he, the character I have. I would say maybe sixty percent of the way I talk or my humor or whatever was was influenced by Roy, you know. Yeah. And uh, I miss him every day. There were, there were uh, years and years where we didn't see each other or talk, and it was always on and off, but when we did hook up, it was always we were always right back on the same page, like the day, the last time we saw each other, which might have been 20 years earlier, you know what I mean? Yeah, right. Time and space really didn't have any meaning between me and Roy. We were always on the same page, uh, no matter what fallouts we had, no matter what arguments we had or whatever. A couple of a couple of uh, periods of time goes by, and we get back together, and we're back again like we used to be, you know. And unfortunately, that happened again right before the 2019 tour of Europe, when Roy collapsed at the airport. So, you know, if somebody would have told me way back when, when Roy left the band, that the the, the last days of the Flame of Groovies, Roy would be back with us, I would have been amazed. You know what I mean? Yeah. I would have, I would have, I, back then I thought that's it. We'll, we'll never be working again together. And, you know, life, life is strange. You, you don't know what's going to happen. Uh, and I've always been somebody who, uh, I'm not vindictive. I, I don't hold grudges. And I like going with the flow. And if doors open and there's a chance to get back together again and, and revamp what we used to be able to do together, hey, man, I'm all for it. You know, I'm all for it. Yeah. And it's such a shame that uh, the uh, rotting of his guts caught up with him at that point in time when we were getting ready to go to Europe to, to play an album we cut that we had never played live because Teenage Head, after it was recorded, the band broke up. So we never played those songs live. I mean, years later, you know, people are calling out for Teenage Head, so, you know, now Wilson's got to sing Teenage Head. You know? <laughs> <laughs> right. 
So again, uh, you have control, but you don't have control. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, we still got the music, right? Uh, you and Roy uh, made some amazing music together, and uh, you know, we'll always have that. Well, that's what's so great about recording. Um, that we can actually listen and go back, you know, decades and go, wow, far out, you know. I get a, I get a big kick out of it. And, and when I do play one of my old records, which is rare, uh, because I'll usually, somebody will call me up and they're in a bar and they're playing one of my songs and they'll, they'll let me hear it, you know. But the times that I do play one of my records, I get a big kick out of realizing that, we were really talented when we were little kids, you know. <laughs> God, we were so talented. <laughs> yeah, you were. Well, I'm glad you're still doing it, Cyril. That's uh, that's the other thing, too. And uh, you're still talented. The Ugly Things Podcast was produced by James Archer and narrated by Mike Stacks. That's me. I've been publishing Ugly Things magazine now for 40 years, covering the best overlooked music of the 1960s and beyond. You can order the latest issue of the magazine at UglyThings.com. That's Ugly-Things.com, where you can also order back issues, vinyl, CDs, and books, and read additional articles and reviews. Please subscribe to the podcast, leave a review, and best of all, tell your friends. Word of mouth is important. We would really also appreciate it if you became a Patreon supporter. For just a small monthly donation, Patreon members get exclusive access to all kinds of interesting bonus content. Your contribution will help us keep bringing you the very best in 1960s beat, garage, and psychedelic music. I'd like to send out a personal thank you to our top Patreon supporters, Michael Barbera, Rob Brannigan, Ray Brandis, Chip Lyon, Stephen Schmidt, and Phil Payne. Thank you, all of you, for your support. And thank you for listening. I want your love tonight To make my head feel light Oh, baby, won't you sell me down Baby Tell me it's all right It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. 
That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points. 